Hey everyone, this is Sam, better known as That Girl with the Curls, and I'm recording this just to kind of give you a heads up that the first 14 episodes are essentially, they were previously recorded for the website Word of the Nerd that I used to write for, and as I am no longer a writer for that website, I decided to take my podcast with me uh, to my own website, The Maniacal Geek, and uh, use this as my forum for interviewing people and whatnot and saying things that I want to say, which, you know, hopefully this introduction is getting that across. If not, I apologize. So uh, you will hear this on every recording for the first 14. After that, they will be different recordings, uh, just kind of, you know, intros, basically, to whomever's on the podcast. So if you're hearing this for the umpteenth time, please skip ahead. Uh, if not, uh, just enjoy the rest of the show, and I hope you keep listening and come back for more. All right, thank you so much, and uh, have fun with this episode. So uh, I am uh, very pleased and honored to uh, bring in, as my first official guest with this title, uh, a writer of Southern Dog, uh, was it After Houdini, a pulp comic, and, uh, oh, what's, what's the last one? What's the last one? Art Monster, that's it. Uh, Jeremy Holtz. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That's uh, actually a, a welcoming surprise. I didn't realize you were changing the name. Yeah, we um we we had some discussions about it and uh my one of my other um editors decided that Sam Speak sounded more like I was a dog <laughs> that was being allowed to talk to people. Fair enough. So we've rebranded and I, I like it much better since people seem to recognize me more by my curls than anything else on <laughs> Oh, that's really cool though. Yeah, so, you know, welcome. You are the official first guest on the, the rebranded show. Well, I am honored. Excellent. And I'm I'm really happy to have you because uh, we follow each other on Twitter. And uh, you you were kind enough to send me a, a review, basically previews of your, of your work because, uh, unfortunately, I wasn't very familiar with it, but... Um, it was it was really uh, pleasant to be able to 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 read those because um, you you work for a lot of the smaller publishers at this point, right? That's correct. And um, before we get into actually, want to get into something else. Uh, what got you into comic books? What made you want to be a comic book writer? Um, well, I think I'd have to give a lot of credit to my oldest brother. Mm-hmm. Um. He was a collector. I, I don't think he collects so much now, but he was a collector as a kid. And um, I was, you know, introduced to them and exposed to them, but I didn't really grow up with them. And I went most of my entire life without reading a comic book. And mm-hmm. it was maybe five and a half years ago. Um, I was hanging out with him and he, we were at a coffee shop. And he's like, hey, we should just read some old comics that I got. So I was like, okay. And, uh, yeah, he just gave me some comics. I read them. I really liked what I read. I was very impressed with, you know, the, uh, the stories that were being created. And I was reading stuff that was, you know, at least 20 years old. Um, what were you reading? Uh, the first book he gave me was Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. And oh, there we go. Yeah, it was that book that I was like kind of, I was very impressed with, with how mature comics could be. Because I think a lot of people think of them as like the Sunday funnies or just for kids kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I went back. I was living in New York at the time. I went back to New York after visiting him. His him and his family live in Connecticut, and um, I went to the comic book shop, which I didn't know there were still comic book shops. That was a nice surprise, and um, <laughs> you know, just understanding how it all worked, and like you know, Wednesdays were the new comic book days, and you know, I'd see guys come in with like a basket, and they just just strong arm the sh- the new release shelves and just push everything into their cart. Um, <laughs> I was like, wow, that's impressive. And, you know, I just talked to some of the people at um, the comic sh- shop I went to was uh, Forbidden Planet in Union Square in New York City. And uh, the staff there is really helpful. And, uh, you know, I'd ask, you know, recommend some stuff like what are people reading that are not superheroes. So, you know, I, I got introduced to Preacher and Transmetropolitan and, and DMZ and uh, Scalped. And it wasn't until I read uh, Brian K. Vaughn's Why the Last Man that I was like, I want to write a comic book. Yeah. Were you, uh, were you always a writer? Um, or was this just something with that, that was just like the, Oh my God, I want to do this. Or had you been writing previously? I had not been writing. Um, I did some writing in high school, but I didn't take it seriously. I I actually went to art school and uh, I I got a degree in sound design for film and television. And I was doing that, um, for a while. And, uh, yeah, I never really took anything seriously as far as writing went. Um, so it was really kind of daunting because I was like going to take on this creative endeavor, this this new medium of creativity that I'd never explored. I had I had no confidence in it, yet I still felt compelled to do it, which was weird. Um, and I just kind of learned along the way. No, I can I can definitely relate. Um, I'm I'm gonna have a, a story published soon in um, uh, for Red Stylo. Okay. Uh, and so it's my first like official ever comic book script, uh, anything that I've written. So I'm, I'm excited and nervous about what people will think of it. So I'm, I'm definitely in the same. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, so you, were you not as into like the superhero stuff? Did you want different types of content? Is that what kind of shifted? I I just wanted new stories. Like I didn't really want to have to worry about the continuity. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I started, you know, uh, at my job, I, I was uh, I worked at Apple as a computer technician, um, and you know I started talking about comics with coworkers, and I found out there were quite a few. I mean, working with tech nerds all day long, it wasn't like a huge surprise, but uh, <laughs> I mean, there were quite a few people that read comic books, and you know, all of them were really into Green Lantern for some reason, and mm-hmm. and just the different storylines and the continuity. I was just like, no, not for me, like. They tried so hard to convince me, and I was like, you know, have you read Invincible? Like, that's, I, I think that's really good. Um, so I kind of introduced friends to creator own comics, and I was exploring it myself. So it was, um, every new book I picked up was kind of like um, like a class to me, uh, yeah. just seeing how different writers work. And then, you know, I did the research into, you know, the process of writing and, and seeing different writers' script formats and, you know, understanding how to, pace out a comic book script and um so you know it's it's I'm constantly learning so it's it's uh it's been a lot of a lot of fun and and you mentioned you know Frank Miller and uh and Brian K. Vaughn who I'm I'm a huge admirer of his because Saga is like one of my favorite books right now so um were there were there particular other than them I guess were there particular writers that you gravitated more towards or um uh, just kind of tried to develop your own style first I think the the one style as far as content was concerned. I mean, Ryan came on was a big influence, but uh, 
I say Brian Wood and Jason Aaron, like seeing the stories they did with Scalped and DMZ, you know, they were partially historical using modern day uh, settings. Um, you know, Brian K. Vaughn's DMZ is amazing where it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. this big what if question, you know, what if the war overseas that it were so removed from suddenly was taking place on home soil? Yeah. Um, and it was that kind of broad big scope concept that, you know, I started to try to develop my own and, you know, think about stories and, and, you know, think about how to relate them to things that interested me. Um, so those, those guys were huge influences and, and, um, Jason Aaron's, uh, script format and Joshua Dysart's script format, because I was, uh, I was a huge fan of Unknown Soldier, um, seeing how they formatted their scripts was really interesting and I kind of used both those as examples and I kind of made my own, which once I figured out the format that I liked, it actually helped sp- speed up my process as far as editing. So that was really helpful. Do you, are, are you your own editor? Do you have editors with the different companies that you work with? Um, I'm, mo- I'm my editor most of the time. I do have, for After Houdini, I had a script editor. Um, the editors with the small press publishers that I'm with, they're not really editorial, hands-on editorial. I mean, they will you know, make sure things are in, in on time and, you know, stuff like that. But uh haven't really had the the real invasive editing. Yeah. <laughs> and so, well, good thing that you brought up after Houdini because that was, I'm trying to go in the order that I actually read your, your book okay. in. So I read, I read after Houdini first. Um, was that your, your first, uh, uh, like, your first script that you, you got approved? Um um, no, I mean, well, after Houdini is kind of going through, it's not really through a publisher. It's more of, um, through my friend's kind of comic imprint. He, he, Ryan Ferrier is, uh, kind of the, the brains behind, uh, Challenger Comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also a letterer and writer and he's got a bunch of great stuff out, but, um, he's invited a lot of friends to kind of, you know, for him to publish their short stories or full issues on his website um, after Houdini actually was one of the later things I, I wrote. Oh, okay. Um, well, I think it's, it's, it's a very interesting concept too. Like you're, you're, it's basically the son of Houdini, um, you know, uh, going and working for the, uh, for a government agency, basically. Um, what was, I mean, what was the, uh, the inspiration behind that one, I guess? Uh, the inspiration was a book I read, um, called The Secret Life of Houdini, The Making of America's First Superhero by... William Kalush and Larry Sloman. Um, this book proposed the idea of Houdini actually um, being, he, he was actually a spy for American and British intelligence in the lead up to World War I. Um, so this is kind of around the turn of the century. And reading that book gave a lot of insight into, you know, Houdini as a person, um, other than, you know, him being a performer and being an escape artist and magician. Um, and at first, when I was writing this story, I, I was focusing it on Houdini because actually the artist was the one who pitched the, the concept of writing a Houdini comic. Um, Kevin Ziegler and I had been working on some pitches and, you know, we just couldn't find our groove and, and uh, find a story we both really wanted to work on. And then I just asked him, instead of me pitching him ideas, I was like, what do you want to draw? Like, what is a story you want to tell visually? And he's like, I love Harry Houdini. I was like, sold. I'm going to get back to you with an idea and we'll go from there. Um, so yeah, I just went, uh, read that book and, 
um, I decided to kind of shift focus from Houdini because I think, you know, a lot of people know of Houdini or have preconceived ideas of who he was or who he is. And um, I wanted to kind of take a new angle because I thought it'd be easier and more accessible for a reader to jump into the story with a protagonist that was kind of figuring out the mystery of all of this at the same time. Um, so that's how Joseph kind of came came into light. It seems like it would be kind of, you know, in, in a lot of ways freeing for you too, because then you don't have to be beholden to a, you to something entirely. Like you have Houdini's life that you can, you know, put into the narrative when you need to, but it's not like I have to tell the story of Houdini. That's exactly it. I mean, it took a lot of the pressure off because I was, at first I was like, I'm straight up writing a bio comic. Like it's cool and all, but it's been done before and it's not really my style. Um, and this was one of those comics that, you know, I love historical fiction. It's probably one of my favorite genres, and um, I love doing research. So for me, it's hard to remove myself from the research and make it fun rather than just a bunch of factoids. And, uh, with Kevin, he was a great influence to just be like, you know, get out of your head. Like, I like these ideas. I don't, I'm not interested in these ideas. Let's kind of focus on this and expand it a bit. And then it kind of got me out of, what I like to just sit and write all day long and kind of think more fantastic and more, you know, using magic in, in some new and interesting ways. So, Did you research a lot of the tricks and everything that Houdini did? I, I, yes, I, I researched a, a several of those. Um, I watched a lot of films, just, you know, I mean, those are mostly for entertainment, but um, some of the tricks actually in the first issue, one of them in particular was a trick that my roommate in college used to do at parties. Um, which was so amazing because he would take a deck of cards and he, and he'd count out five of them and he'd give them to you and he'd say, hide them, just put them wherever you want, your back pocket, your coat, whatever, under, you know, in your shoe. And then he would basically make the next set of cards, like two or three of them disappear, like in front of you. And he'd like rub them into his leg and it would disappear. And then he'd have you count the cards, pull them out from wherever you're hiding them and count them. And it worked every time. He would transfer cards to you. And it's just the most amazing thing. And, I mean, when you're at a party in college, like, just about anything is amazing. Yeah, um, it's true. <laughs> like, if someone is, like, legitimately doing decent and really good magic, it's like, this is another level. Um, so that kind I of always... I want to believe, like, the David Blaine stuff maybe <laughs> is real. Nothing <laughs> like that. But I think his... By senior year, he was really kind of exploring his magic. And he, my roommate was thinking about doing it kind of in the streets. We went to college in Savannah, Georgia, and he was thinking about putting on a street show at one point, And he wanted to learn this one trick about taking a knife and cutting through someone's coat, but then, you know, magically fixing the coat. But it was mm-hmm. apparently a very expensive trick. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think he ever mastered it, but uh, it had to go through a lot of coats. Yeah. I met. <laughs> uh, it definitely stuck with me though. And, and it was one of those things that, you know, when Kevin mentioned magic, it kind of sparked something in, in, in my mind about, you know, those experiences and how amazing it was in college. And I wanted to try to capture some of that. Well, it's really cool. And it seems like you and Kevin have a very good working relationship then where, you know, you tend to be in your head trying to, you know, find all the factoids and, you know, trying to develop the story. But he kind of brings it around and so it's like, all right, let's just filter out what we need here. Yeah, he, I would say he added the fun. Yeah, Um, but yeah, it's been a really great partnership with him. It's been like it's been 100 percent collaborative. Um, What I love when when I know I'm I'm kind of 
attacking a piece of fiction that that is uh, folding in a, a bunch of history, when I know I'm doing a good job is when I come across facts that play right into the story and I didn't even have to make them up. Uh, mm. And that happened con- that's happened constantly while writing after reading with Kevin and you know we he'd send me like some fact he found or I'd send him something we're just like oh my god this is amazing let's let's get to work on this right away. <laughs> you know, do you want to add like an asterisk every time be like no seriously this really happened <laughs> like yeah there there have been several moments where it's just like we just shrug we're just like this is writing itself it's like so great so I I, I love that cuz uh, um I was actually a, a history major in, in college so um, I can appreciate the uh, the research that you put into <laughs> things like that, definitely. I'm the type of person that lives in my own head, and when I get like involved in something, I'm like, I'm in it until something else comes along. I'm like, oh, look, shiny. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, well, then moving on from After Houdini, uh, I read uh, Art Monster after that one, which you've been doing for, that's one that's the one for Monkey Brain, right? That's correct. And I like I like the premise of it because uh, it's an updated version, kind of, of, of pretty much a Frankenstein. Yep. Uh, and what I like is the angle that you kind of t- took with it because it's from it is from the artistic perspective instead of the scientific perspective in in a lot of ways. Yes, I would say that's pretty accurate. And, uh, I mean, uh, so what was was that basically your whole you know premise there was just like okay I want to take Frankenstein and do it in this different way or did that come to you later on? Well, you know, this is another one of those circumstances where I have to give credit to an artist coming to me with an idea. Um, <laughs> I, I, this makes me sound like Jeremy. Do you have any original ideas? Probably not. But okay. um, <laughs> Riley Rosmo, who gets a special thanks in the book. Um, I've been a huge fan of his for a very long time, and um, one of my closest friends in comics is Curtis Weeb, and uh, Curtis and Riley worked on Greenway together, and I'd always wanted to meet Riley, and uh, finally did a few years ago, and you know we, we struck up a friendship, and uh, he had approached me um, a few months after, I think it was, might have been Emerald City Comic Con a few years ago, and he was like, hey, I, you know, I really want to work on a pitch with you. You know, what, what ideas do you have? And I gave him some ideas. And he's like, well, I've got this idea about, you know, what if Dr. Frankenstein went to art school? And Riley had gone to art school. And I don't think he knew I went to art school. But I was like, that, I'm sold. Yeah, let's do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started developing it and, and thinking about the story and the characters. And, you know, I, I was, I didn't want to do a direct kind of uh, remake of the, of the Frankenstein story. I wanted to kind of, you know, use elements of it, but I wanted to focus on a struggling artist um, because that's kind of what I, that's not, I mean, that's basically what I went through when I, when I went to art school. I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And even when I got my degree, um, I still wasn't sure. Um, but, uh, you know, Riley and I had been developing it for several months and then um, he got tapped by Nick Spencer to work on Bedlam. So then the project uh, was, was shelved for, a while. I'd say I sat on it for about a year and then I decided I wanted to brush it off and try to get it out there and Riley gave me his blessing and, you know, I continued working on it um, and then it uh, found a home at Muckbrain. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a very, I, I like the the concept of it because, you know, just, it, and it's probably very difficult to do adaptation in that way because you are taking a source material that has been adapted so many times yeah. and then, 
especially trying to find a new angle on it is always, I think, the the biggest thing because it's like, who hasn't heard the Frankenstein Frankenstein story? And then it's like, well, what else are you going to bring to it at this point? Right. And, you know, I wanted to focus on, you know, um, someone, a young person trying to find himself, his, you know, what he's meant to do with his life um, and, you know, the relationship you make at that, that stage in your, in your life and, and how, how romantic feelings can be, you know, uh, crisscrossed and misread. Um, you know, I'm sure everybody's, you know, been interested in somebody that wasn't interested in, in them and that unrequited love is pretty universal. And, um, yeah, I wanted to explore that as well. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's really, um, I, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I mean, it's, it's, you, you try and look for those fresher takes on on those old stories. It's like trying to adapt Shakespeare. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody's everybody tries to do it, and you're just like, well, you're just retelling Shakespeare, only you added bits and bobbles to it. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and the artist on it as well. Um, what's what's his name? Um, well, Francesca. Um, oh, Francesca. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, yeah. Well, actually, the. The uh, artist that I pitched the book with when we pitched it to Monkey Brain originally was Joe Eisma of Morning Glories, and um, mm-hmm. that had gotten obviously picked up right away because they were like, oh, this is great, Joe Eisma's attached even better. Um, but then Joe had to step down for scheduling conflicts, so uh, Francesca and I had been working on a pitch for something else, and you know, I was like, I really want this to happen. You know, are you interested in the subject matter at all? And she was very excited, um, and she. It's just blowing me away with with the art she's doing. And and uh, on the previous project we were working on, you know, I loved her ink so much that um, I I was actually really confident in the fact that, that I was going to do a black and white book. I've I've never actually done a black and white book, and um, yeah, I mean her inks hold up. So yeah, it's it's very powerful. Uh, the panels, especially on the on the issue that you gave me, it um, I mean it it reminds me. There's a very interesting, it's like kind of like, it is kind of like Riley's um, art crossed with a little bit of like jock at times. Yeah, yeah. Which I always appreciate. I like when people can do uh, art um, just using black and white because it shows like, you know, colors are important, don't get me wrong, but when you can just do, you know, make those statements with just black and white and still make them as powerful, you know, I think that's that's a great accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot of artists, I think, that, you know, I've reviewed so many, you know, pages on DeviantArt and whatnot. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of artists will have really strong lines. But, you know, when it comes to the contrast, you know, you see it less because, you know, comics should be colored for the most part. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm I really, really happy with what she's doing. And, and uh, the every page I get from her is like Christmas. And um, mm-hmm. so it's been really it's been a lot of fun. Now, our, um, is our art monster, as well as, I mean, uh, I know with Pulp, that was a, a, a one-shot, but with uh, with Art Monster and um, After Houdini, are they going to be ongoing, or do you have, like, a set amount of um, issues that you're going to do? Um, they're both set to be miniseries. Art Monster is going to be a four-issue miniseries. Um, After Houdini is going to be a five-issue miniseries. Okay, so you've got a you've got a story to tell, and after that, it's it's anybody's guess. Yeah, I think after Houdini is probably the only project I I'm currently working on that I could extend it for two more story arcs, so a total of maybe 15 issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything else, you know, that I've I've written, I always kind of have the ending 
as I always knew the ending before I even knew the middle of the story. So those definitely have conclusive uh, uh, chapters to them. That's a, I mean, that's a very interesting, like, uh, when, you know, when I talked to to Curtis Weeb and uh, also to, like, Joshua Williamson, you know, there's a, it's very interesting how writers always seem to have an end point. Like, there's, you know, even with minis or with ongoing titles and everything, there's always this idea in their heads that they have, like, I know what the end of the (laughs) story is. I always know. And it's just like, that's, uh, I always find that amazing. It's just like, even if it's just, four issues you're like no i got it <laughs> i think it's really impressive with writers that that get to do ongoing series or extended series because you know depending on the reality is that you know your book has to sell to keep making the book and there are writers who are like into issue 11 or 12 and they're and they're, they have to kind of build in a fail safe in case the numbers aren't there they have to end the story and that is something that i'd be really nervous to kind of try to figure out because it's like you know, that's, that's a lot of planning. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, it, writing the ending for me, for the stories that I've written, it's, it's pretty easy. It's the middle that I'm always nervous about because I want to fill it out. I want, you know, the, the opening is, is kind of starts with a bang for me usually and, you know, visually catches, should catch someone's eye. And then the ending is what kind of makes them think about what they've just spent their time reading. Uh, but it's that middle that, uh, you know, I'm still kind of, uh, getting better at telling and, and fleshing out and making more interesting and whatnot. Trying to pour over this, just be like, how am I going to make this work? And exactly. It's like trying to put together a puzzle, but you don't really see what the end picture is going to be. So it's very challenging, but you're doing, you're doing good so far. I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I like what I'm reading. So <laughs> I guess this would be awkward if you're like, you know, I read this one, not any good. Read this yeah, I'm, I'm always that's the that's the biggest worry sometimes when I read a comic for when I when I review for the the website for Word of the Nerd because yeah. um, I I I get accused not I mean not accused but a lot of people do tell me it's like you you seem to re- you know be saying a lot of nice things about you know <laughs> it's like well why would I choose something that I already know I'm gonna hate from the beginning <laughs> yeah like you know I, I get that there needs to be criticism but like people that's you know only write reviews to kind of bash things. It's like, if you didn't enjoy reading it, just find something you enjoy writing or reading. And then, you know, writing it would be probably more pleasurable than just kind of, you know, ripping holes into someone's work. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's critique and being like, well, this didn't exactly work for me in terms of like story or the art or something like that. I mean, there's always going to be like little glitches here and there. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd never review something with the intention of like bashing it and just being like, Hey, look at all these clever things I said about this person. Oh my God. I'm so awesome. (laughs) Um, and you write for uh, multiversity, uh, don't you? I, I did. Um, I wrote a 16 parts memoir column uh, about my experiences, um, breaking into comics and I had to end it at 16 because basically one to 16 is, is about, I'd say three and a half years of experiences that I finally caught up, uh, to by, by, uh, part 16. So I, I didn't really have anything else to write cause I caught up to my daily life. And I was like, well, <laughs> I don't have any new stories to tell cause I'm at today. Um, like now we're in the present. Exactly. I'm currently writing this as I'm thinking it. Yeah. Yeah. I started writing 17. I was like, I'm just writing what I'm doing today like I'm writing my errands like this is no I need to just you know take a sabbatical and, and build up some material and, and visit mm-hmm. it 
was uh was was it your intention to write about your experiences in uh in in the industry or was it just kind of or your memoir I, I suppose or did someone approach you about that um i guess the idea first uh took form i think maybe a couple years before so i started writing the column in 2012 i think in like 2009 or 2010 somebody from another website a smaller website had asked me to write about my experiences. And I was like, oh, absolutely. So I wrote the first part and sent it to them. And then they kind of went MIA and I didn't hear from them. And I just kind of forgot about it. And then um, the editor-in-chief, uh, Matt Mylikoff, uh actually sent me an email. He's like, hey, we're, we're putting together some new content. I really like your work. Um, why don't you pitch me something you'd want to contribute for the for the website? And I was like, can I do a memoir column? And he's like, Sure. Um, so I sent him the first one. He's like, Hey, this is really good. And he was actually the first person that I'd ever worked with that kind of edited anything I wrote, um, oh, okay. which was really helpful. And he, you know, he read it and obviously, you know, he caught grammar mistakes here and there, but he'd, you know, read a whole passage. And he's like, you know, I, I get what you're going with here, but have you thought about going in this direction with it? And then I'd reread. I'm like, well, that's a, that's very insightful. Um, so he was really, uh, responsible for kind of shaping that that entire story for me because uh, I would have just rambled. <laughs> it's like a blog post. You're just like, well, and then this yeah. stuff happened. And um, when I was when I was in school, we did a there was a whole article that was written about a receipt about the um, the story of a receipt. Oh, really? Yeah, it was it was actually really interesting because I, I went to school not only for history but I'm an archivist as well. Oh. So. Um, yeah, the the first thing that we read as students in the archives program was about the, you know, what goes into a receipt. And it's really interesting how you, you don't think like this innocuous little item could have a history. Huh? Then you're like, no, the paper, the ink, the everything that led up to a cash register, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, I I think I still have that book. So I kept pretty much all of my books from from college. I mean, to a to a degree, I had to sell some of them off to get you know like coffee money sure. every once in a while. Sure. <laughs> get that alcohol money that oh, I needed yeah, to be a, you know, struggling writer. <laughs> writing. <laughs> like here, take this book on George Washington. I need the money. <laughs> Um, but it, it's just one of those things where you you don't think that something can um, can come of. Of, of I guess this you know germ of an idea or a small thing that you don't think about and and then it just you know spawns into another thing entirely yeah um and so what has a what's your relationship been like with uh, the editors at like or not maybe not necessarily editors but with companies like Monkey Brain and Action Lab and um, and with Challenger at this point they've all been a little different um, I'd say. Uh... Monkey Brain is pretty hands-off. Um, getting through the door is probably the hardest part. Um, but after that... Get through the door. Yeah, yeah. Um, but after that, you know, Chris and Allison are, are you know, they're very uh, communicative. Like, if I send an email, I get a response, you know, within a within that same day or a couple of days. Um, you know, considering they're both, you know, they have full-time lives, uh, it's it's impressive what they've been doing with the, with the company. Um, Action Lab... You know, has a has a bigger uh, roster of employees. Um, they've really, I think, done a great job with handling different aspects of a publisher, like marketing and and editorial and reviews. And um, I was really happy that they took on Southern Dog because you know 
writing that story, I, I always knew it was going to be a hard sell on people. Um, mm-hmm. Who wants to read a comic book about racism? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they, they saw the potential. I mean, I, I will also give credit to um, 215 Inc. was the small press publisher that originally published the first issue a couple of years ago. And um, they saw the same thing and, and, you know, went with them for a while. And it's been, you know, really interesting to see how, you know, these small press publishers feel kind of like startup companies. I mean, they basically are. Um, mm-hmm. So everybody's kind of, you know, pulling their weight, uh, wearing lots of different hats to kind of get the job done. Um, and everybody's doing it because they love it. You know, I my day job, I work basically for a startup. And, you know, I'm fixing computers all day long and, and it's, you know, it's fine, but it's not my passion. And, you know, the, the other, I'd say, you know, the retail employees, it's not their lifelong goal to work retail for the rest of their lives. So it's like, it's a different mentality. It's like, I'm doing it because I want to get paid. Um, mm-hmm. So comics, I mean, working with the small press publishers has been, um, has been really uh, insightful and informative because it's kind of opened my eyes to getting better at marketing myself and what channels there are, what opportunities there are. You know, you have to take the initiative. Um, so that's been really educational. And, and also with uh, most of these uh, most of these companies, a lot of them are born digital, essentially. Like a Monkey Brain is essentially just you know you make it and then it goes to Comicsology, isn't that right? That's exactly right. So I mean, um, how have you felt about that? And you know, are there possibilities of your stories going to print, or are they only going to remain in uh, in digital format? Um, that's a great question. Uh, Southern mm-hmm. Dog is actually my first going to be my first monthly printed book. Um, when Southern Dog came out through 215 Inc. two years ago, um, the first issue was really well received by you know, reviewers and um, those the artists, the colorist and the artist, um, Adam and Alex, uh, Alex more specifically, when that book came out, he got a lot of attention from it, which is exactly what I wanted to happen for him. Mm-hmm. And then he got you know a lot of other projects and then he had to, <laughs> he had to step down because in creator own comics, there's not necessarily upfront pay. Yeah. Um, so the project kind of stalled and it, and I kind of shelved it for a couple of years. And, um, it was because Action Lab was willing to take on printing it that I was able to get the band back together. And, uh, we knocked out the four issues for that series. And, um, so that'll be coming out in print. Uh, August 13th is the first issue. Um, pre-orders for in previews are currently up. I think they will be up until the end of the month. Um, so, you know, if people are listening, uh, if they want a copy of the book, they will need to pre-order because it is a small press book, so not every shop can carry it. Um, with Monkey Brain, um, because of the clout that they've been building, um, a lot of their books have already found print publishers. I, I think IDW is one of the big ones, um, Image. Uh, so there are those avenues once um, projects get completed. So as soon as Art Monster is done and I'm also working on another monkey brain series skinned. Um, once those are done, we're going to definitely look for print publishers for those. Excellent. Um, and, and so I, I do want to talk about Southern dog because I mean, like you said, it is a bit of a hard sell on, you know, you're, you're basically taking the, the werewolf concept into the South and, uh, and, it's really a commentary on, uh, on, I wouldn't say the South in general, but racism in general. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, most people 
uh, if they don't know, I mean, my, my, my name is misleading, but I am an Asian American. So, uh, racism is something I've basically experienced my entire life. Um, whether that was when I was living in the South, um, I spent most of my life living overseas and I experienced it there. So it's really one of those things that just hasn't quite gone away, even though for the most part, I feel like most people don't, uh, aren't exposed to it. Um, mm -hmm. but it still very much exists. The KKK still very much exists in very different forms now, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I, I wanted to explore and, you know, just tell a story. Mm -hmm. And and definitely the the supernatural element too, because we we've all seen kind of like with the um, with the X Men like being the allegories for you know the the civil rights movement and everything. There's always uh, I'm not saying that there's always nice to have a you know a gimmick or an in or whatever, but you can explore different aspects of yeah um, a, a cultural phenomena or um, you know aspects of society through that cipher. Yes, I think that, um, you know, the topic is hard to discuss. Um, so using, you know, the, the werewolf trope, I think, makes it a little bit more accessible um, for readers because it might pique their interest a little bit more. Um, I think the imagery itself is really cool. Like a werewolf fighting off Klansmen is pretty cool. I mean, that's, that's how the story started in my mind. I had a dream about it. So, uh, Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, the imagery stuck with me. I just didn't know what to do with it. And then when I... Again, doing some research, uh, found I built up a really good foundation of where I wanted to take the story, and, and from there it just kind of wrote itself, which was nice. Now did I mean? Did you grow up in the South a lot, or or was that just um, you, you wanted to just kind of immerse yourself in that culture? To to I mean, because the the way you write the dialogue, it sounds very genuine. Yeah, I, I actually I, yeah I spent um, the last two years of high school in Texas. I went to college in Georgia. Um, I wasn't necessarily in the deep South, like Alabama, Louisiana, but, um, I had enough experiences living in a small town in Texas and, um, living in Georgia that, uh, it's, you know, was enough for me to kind of reflect upon, um, you know, some of the racism that I experienced, uh, early on was probably say maybe freshman, no, sophomore year of high school is when I experienced something that kind of stuck with me. Um, and just, you know, even when I lived in New York city, I experienced racism pretty often. And it, and it was, it's not like the malicious, like I'm going to beat you up racism. It's like, mm -hmm. um, just assumptions. Uh, you know, I, I worked at, um, one of the jobs I had when I first moved to New York city, I worked at Victoria's secret, uh, doing their inventory. And it's a really terribly difficult job for a man because, Basically, you have to unload boxes full of bras, right? And they're all different styles. <laughs> Very difficult. And the different styles don't look any different to me. But mm -hmm. I have to not only separate the styles, but then I have to hang them in the store by sizes. And it's when when you're looking at two different bras that are supposed to be different, and I'm looking at them, and look, they look identical, it takes forever. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> why I had that job, that's the story in itself, but... Uh, your great dilemma, Jeremy. All right. Um, but my manager, this guy, Ray, you know, just had the New York accent. He was totally a New Yorker, and it was kind of novel to be around him. But um, the only other inventory specialist was another guy who coincidentally was Asian. Uh, his name was Kim. 
And mm-hmm. when Kim and I would be receiving product from UPS, there was this moment where Ray is talking and joking with the UPS guy, and then he says, oh, you know, Kim and Jeremy understand hard work, you know, because they spend 18 hours in the rice paddy fields. Oh, my Lord. And I, I just remember, like, it just stung, but I didn't, I didn't really know how to process it, so I didn't do anything about it. And uh, there was another manager who was much nicer, and she, she, she uh, asked me, she said, so, oh, so do you speak Chinese? And I, and I said, oh, oh, well, no, I'm Korean-American. And she's like, oh, but you don't speak Chinese? <laughs> and I, I literally didn't know what to do, so I just turned around and went back to work. Like, I, I literally had no response. I didn't know how to react. Um, yeah. So it's it's things like that that have always kind of been, you know, in the peripheral for me. Um, and I wanted to kind of tell a story about racism in, in a more, I think, extreme way. I think Southern Dog is does take some extremes and some liberties. Um, but It's a much more visceral story, definitely. Yeah. And, and you know, the idea, you know, using the, the werewolf as an allegory for you know, transformation and, you know, going through adolescence and how hard that can be and to imagine having to do that while also hiding the secret of what you turn into um, was uh, was a really, really challenging but but uh, ultimately uh, rewarding story to, to tackle. Well, I mean, that, that's it sucks that you had to experience those things, but the, I mean, it, does, the, does the writing help you deal with those kinds of things? You know, I think I kind of... Um, I've come to terms with those things. Like, I don't think I, I think if I was still trying to process those things, the story would have probably been very one sided. It would have been like the clan's bad. You know, we're going to talk about how bad they are because they're racists. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was hard to kind of uh, at first rein it in and kind of be very you know delicate about it. Um, and a couple of my friends, uh, write, other writers, have read the first issue, and, and one of them actually sent me an email today, and he was like, I really dug the story, man, and you, you walked a very fine line. Some of it made me very uncomfortable, but in the best of ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is the biggest compliment I can get, because it is it is a, a tough thing to explore. Yeah, and especially to, I mean, like you said before, to sell to other people, where you're just like, no, seriously, it's... <laughs> <laughs> This is a good story. You just, you know, it's going to make you feel, you know, very uncomfortable, but at the same time, and I, but I think that those are the best stories too, because they spark the dialogue. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if you ever read, uh, there was a book called, um, uh, end times with Bram and Ben. Oh no, uh, I haven't read that, but it was one of those books that I always wanted to try to look into. And it's really good. Like, uh, so I, I talked with James Asmus and, oh, cool. and Jim Vistante who wrote it. And we talked a lot about religion because, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, the, the stuff you're not supposed to talk about in polite company, you know, religion and politics. Um, but this book, you know, just kind of tackles it and doesn't do it in a malicious way, um, just comes at it at a different angle. And, and I always feel like those are the best types of stories that you're a little uncomfortable, but at the same time, you want to talk more about it. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look into that for sure now because that sounds awesome. Yeah, it does, and there's it's funny as hell too. So, <laughs> I, I I find myself drawn to a lot of um, a lot more humorous comics because I get really tired of the drudgery of you know super serious. Oh, like, for sure, I, I'm I'm guilty of that, and and it, I I don't think I do a very good job with with comedy writing, but like 
Uh, Ryan Farrier's Monkey Brain series, Dave, is hilarious. Uh, mm-hmm. Rat Queens, Curtis's Rat Queens is, is hilarious. And it, oh, I love I, Rat Queens. Yeah, and I just, I, I don't have that, um, I wouldn't say I don't have the ability, I just don't have the skill that they have to write funny. Because, like, I'm always, with comedy, I'm always second-guessing myself. I'm like, I think it's funny, but mm-hmm. will anyone else... <laughs> Yeah, that that's always the thing. You're just like, I know that I can make a joke. It's just, can I? <laughs> and especially with them um, writing comics too, because comedy in comics is, I I feel is far more difficult because it's about timing. Yes, absolutely. It's all about timing. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, even when it's just actually telling a joke, when you have to do it on printed paper and make sure that the panel corresponds to the joke you're trying to tell and tell it effectively, like that 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 could probably make you pull your hair out. Yeah. <laughs> and to get the visual just right to, to sell that joke. I mean, it's tough. Yeah. No, I mean, it's nothing on you, Jeremy. If you can't, <laughs> if you don't want to do the comedy stuff, you don't have to, you're doing just Good. fine. Fine. <laughs> awesome. I won't. <laughs> I'm not going to hold it against you, but like, <laughs> <laughs> like Jeremy Holt tried to do comedy. I don't know what he was thinking, but <laughs> It's like Southern Dog. Apparently, this was supposed to be a comedy. I don't get. I don't it. see it. I, I don't see it at all. What's the punchline? <laughs> Some kind of Tom Green version of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I love the um the cover. I mean, that's that's definitely Riley's uh, cover right there. Yeah. Uh, and it's I mean it's gorgeous and haunting and because uh, I I did reviews for Bedlam and I I just and I I talked to Mitt. Emerald City a, a few years ago, and it was just kind of like, you draw my nightmares, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's pretty phenomenal, and uh, the nicest guy, too, and, and that's the other thing about, the kind of the bonus of getting into comics that I, I didn't think about, because it wasn't, you know, something anyone ever told me, but, you know, it's a small-knit community, and, and uh, everybody's in it because they love it, um, for the most part, and, uh, you know, I've made some of the best bestest friends I've ever made uh, in my life. Like, these are friends I'm going to have for life. And, you know, not only are they are they great people, but, you know, I respect them tremendously as, as creators. And, um, you know, the the other careers I've, I've pursued, I've never made friends quite in the same way. Um, so it's been, it's been really awesome. And it's, it's life changing, honestly. Well, that's awesome. Like, I love the passion especially in this industry because you you especially for someone like me who's trying to get into it you know in in her own way uh it's it's good to see that kind of passion always coming out of the creators and the artists and in the writers and even the editors too like when you can see someone who's just like this is what I want to do that just makes you want to be a part of that community all the more oh absolutely yeah um so uh I want, also want to talk about Pulp because th- that was a one shot that got a lot of um, really good uh, critical acclaim uh, for for it, and and I it was really good. Like it was really smart and really um, not that I'm just trying to like blow smoke up. Like <laughs> Jeremy, this is like the most awesome thing I've ever read in my entire life. <laughs> uh, but it was I- I'm a fan of Pulp comics, so. Uh, it, it surprised me, so you know, well done. Uh, Thank you. Um, what? How did this? How did that story come about? Um, well, uh, Kurt Pyers, who uh, writes um, Theremin for Monkey Brain, he's got a, a 
an awesome new series through Dark Horse that's coming out soon. Um, he had done a one-shot called LP, and um, I had read it, loved it. Multiversity ran a big story on it, um, <clears throat> which I think is what brought my attention to it. And uh, Kurt and I have since been friends after that, which is pretty awesome for me and <laughs> for him. Uh, but see, reading a one-shot... Um, because I've been working on a bunch of pitches, and, and some of them weren't really going anywhere, and, uh, you know, you, you naturally get frustrated when you're not progressing, and um, there was something really fresh about a one-shot in my, in my mind, because it's like I can, you know, get something one and done and out, and, you know, the hardest thing about doing uh, a miniseries is that depending on, you know, your timetable for production, you might get the first issue out, the second one might take longer for X, Y, and Z reasons, and it sucks when someone's like, I love the first issue, when's the second one coming out? And you just shrug. You're like, uh, I don't know. Um, yeah. With a one-shot, you, you can avoid that awkward conversation. You're like, look, uh, beginning, middle, end of story in one book, you get the whole thing here. And Kurt showed me that you know, when it's done right, it's awesome. So I was really inspired, and I, I just didn't really know what I wanted to tell in such a short format and um the idea struck me i'd say at like three or four in the morning and it's one of those moments where i, I really could not get back to sleep i was like i'm gonna forget all of this i'm gonna hate myself so i just stayed up and i wrote a really rough outline and then i went to bed the next day i happened to have the day off of work i went to um, my favorite coffee shop in my neighborhood in brooklyn and i Outline, scripted, edited, and finalized the script, the 24-page script, in six hours. Wow. Um, and then I just was like, done. I That was an exercise I wanted to do, and I did it. I feel great. And then I just didn't do anything with it for like a year. And um, I was looking – I decided, you know, I wanted to make it. And then I, you know, was looking for artists. And uh, Chris Peterson and I had collaborated on a five-page short story that actually ran in the back of uh, Curtis – uh, his comic Grim Leaper. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I knew Chris. And, and uh, I sent him the script and he's like, I really want to work on this. And it took a, it took a while for us to get started working on it because he had all these other projects. And, you know, the funny thing about all the reviews we've gotten for this book is that a lot of people talk about the craftsmanship of the art and, you know, the pacing of the story. And Chris and I laugh because of this simple fact. I wrote it in six hours. He literally drew the entire thing penciled, inked, colored, lettered, and designed the book in a week. <laughs> so he, it was maybe, I think, in like February of last year, he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on this. Actually, no, it was, it was December of the year before. He was like, you know, I'm going to start working on this. And he sent me like the first thumbnail of the character. Um, he sent it to me on my birthday. And I was like, oh, awesome. Like, it's going to happen. And then a couple months went by, and he's like, oh, I got this other stuff. And then a whole year just dragged out because he was just he was just busy. And he, and he has a full-time day job, too. Um, and then I was like, look, I really want to get this ready for New York Comic Con. Um, and he was like, okay. And he just knocked it out. And he, I think he was he – was, he went to a convention in, in Canada, I think maybe in Calgary, and he was – the nights after the convention, he went home – or went to his friend's place and he just was drawing comics and he didn't tell me any of this. And he just knocked out 24 pages in like a week. And, uh, it was just unbelievable. And then we got it, we got it done and, you know, sensed around and people really liked it. So it was really uh, rewarding. 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, were you attracted to that type of genre, or was it just the story that popped into your head? It was really just the story. I, I don't think I'm I'm great at the pulps. I mean, I, I, I there are some some stories that I love, like um, uh, God, now I'm blanking. Maltese Falcon, you know, the the both the book and the film, and um, uh, Chandler's uh, Thin Man was a huge influence um but then just i, I want to explore the idea of isolation and obsession and if those were to collide head-on in a car crash what <laughs> would that make there you go that's, uh, that's the... no it's uh it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um there were like elements of misery i think in yeah, there too yeah for sure absolutely yeah. It's like, oh god, he's in a snowy cabin. Something bad's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, I think someone else brought up. They read it and they were like, "Hey, this reminds me of Secret Window, the, the film with Johnny Depp." And I, I'd seen that movie a long time ago, and I totally forgot about it. And I was like, "Wow, maybe my subconscious retained some of that mo- that film, because uh, there are elements in there that definitely bled into the book." It's really weird, like how things influence you, and you don't realize it until like suddenly someone points it out, and they're like, "Oh, that thing." You're like. Oh yeah. Well, see, that's that's a good moment. It's a bad moment when that happens, and you're like, "Oh, I'm just thinking of somebody else's idea." Mm-hmm. Like I've just written someone else's story that's already been done. Like that that's happened to me, and it's just like, "Oh, that's really soul crushing." Like I got to start over. Yeah. And uh, so, and you've talked. You you mentioned that you you you've been working on other pitches. Like, so what is the pitching process like for you? Like, do you just have like a lot of stories, or do you try and work on them individually? Like, how does that go? Um, well, uh, pitching for me has kind of changed. I'd say in the last half year to a year. Um, before all the books I'd mentioned, I was actually working on simultaneously. So mm-hmm. that usually involves writing at the bare minimum a five to ten page script, a one page synopsis that lays out the story beginning, middle, and end. Uh, for the artist, there would be some character bios, issue breakdowns. Um, so I'd have all of that drafted before I'd, I'd even approach an artist. Um, and as far as pitching them, I would get completed art done. Um, a cover, five to ten pages of art with the synopsis. Um, and then it, you know, if usually what happens is if, if someone is interested, you know, they the editor would ask for either more pages or issue breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really want to have all that set, um, you know, just so no one's waiting. Um, recently, uh, I've only been working on two pitches um, that have taken up a lot of time. Uh, one is a is kind of in development with a publisher and I, I can't really spell the details, but, uh, that's taken up, I say half a year, um, which has been really rewarding, but one of the hardest things I've ever, um, done ever. Uh, and the other pitch is a little bit more laid back, easier working with an artist. Uh, it's a historical fiction piece. Um, the pitch for it's called black flags. And the pitch I, I, I say is that it's, um, it's a, a post-apocalyptic story set in the distant past and, instead of the distant future. Oh, okay. Um, so it's dealing with um, kind of the lead-up to the Hundred Year War in France um, and basically the start of the Black Plague. Wow. Yeah. So pretty. That sounds like it's going to be really funny. Um, <laughs> it's going to be. It's going to be a laugh ride. It's going to be hilarious, guys. You know. <laughs> 
Trust me. Like nothing in history is funnier than the plague. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I I might need to do some rewrites now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you can't jo- if you can't have a morbid sense of humor about the fact that you're probably going to die soon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like I'm going to do a comedy script about the French Revolution because, you know, it ends well for everyone. <laughs> Like, guillotine is going to be a punchline, let me tell you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Black Flags is one of those, another one of those those instances where the research I came across with um, just the royal, royal family at that time period, um, the, the, the feuding, uh, the feud going on between England and France at the time, um, mm-hmm. just fed right into the story that I wanted to tell. And it's it's been... Like after Houdini, it's been like writing itself, and, and the newer, the more factoids I come across, the more story I get to expand. So it's been a lot of fun. That's cool. I mean, and, and with the the one that you can't talk about, I mean, just uh, do you like do you like the challenge of writing something like that, or do you do you like to push yourself, or are you more comfortable with things that I mean are a bit more laid back, I suppose. Um, it you know I was expecting to have to work. Um, with this particular project, but I wasn't expecting to the, um, the level of revisions I've had to do, which has been a huge learning experience. It's been a tough one. It's like, I can't, I don't really have a good analogy for it, but, um, it's, it's humbling. Cause it's like, you know, at, at one point in the process, I had written the entire thing. out was five issues, well, it was four issues. originally it was four issues, then extended to five. I had actually scripted four issues. I was outlining the fifth issue, and then uh, I was I, I was told to start over. Oh no! So, so to like throw out a hundred plus pages was something I'd never done before. I already hurt hearing that. Yeah, uh, it was it was one of those things that I took it surprisingly well. I I, I remember. Setting all, of, I, I I created a folder, put all of it in there, and, and like a folder that I was never gonna have to revisit. And then I just opened a blank document and started over uh, the the next day. And um, the story is much stronger for it. Um, my my editor has been invaluable, uh, and it's been it's really opened my eyes to, to how much more I I can grow as a writer. Uh, so you know, if everything works out, I, I mean pretty damn proud of it um but um uh, just in a, in a waiting period right now to hear hear back from my editor so i look forward to to hearing more about this mysterious project then okay. um uh and um so i wanted there's a couple of questions that we do like to ask at, at word of the nerd just kind of like general nerdiness and geekiness like so um are you reading anything any uh, at this point that isn't like related to your writing like any books that you really like right now um, I wish I had my iPad because I could pull it up. Uh, books I'm I'm reading that I'm really liking, comics specifically, are Southern Dog, Rat Queens, um, uh, Manifest Destiny. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, Minimum Wage. Um, The Field. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave, but Dave has ended. Um, <laughs> and Dead Letters which has been pretty amazing through Boom. Uh, mm-hmm. And Dead Body Road. Um, yeah, so there's there's stuff I'm keeping up with. Saga, obviously. 
Yeah. Are are you attracted to a certain type of comic? I mean, I know that we talked about the the superheroes probably don't interest you as much, but is there like a certain genre of comic that you enjoy? Um, I've kind of broadened my taste for what I really enjoy. Um, I guess uh, things that are kind of grounded in reality tend to mm-hmm. attract me almost instantly. So like, you know. Uh, Clone actually is another series that I'm big on. Um, Manifest Destiny. Uh, yeah, these stories are like, um, you know, just things that, that could happen. Like, Ed Brisson is a friend of mine and he's, he's doing some awesome work and The Field is, is a really great comic. Uh, his, his comic Sheltered is also another really great, just, uh, character piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the stories that I really like. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read stuff that's more fantastic. Like, when I read Saga, it, it just amazes me with each issue because it's like he pushes the envelope with, with certain either characters or situations that I realize after reading it, I think to myself, my brain does not have the capacity to come up with that. Like I, yeah. my brain feels very small when I talk. It's like, I, I, I'm enjoying what I'm reading, but I can't comprehend how I would, if I was to create something that grand on that scale, like, I have I have a lot of work to do before I get. To that. You'll just get mad at Brian K. Vaughn. You're like, how do you do this? Yeah, yeah, you know, and that and I actually had the honor of meeting him, which was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Um, I got to interview him and uh, riding in an elevator with him, and I uh, we were going to 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 a place to have the interview, and uh, we were in the ele- elevator. Um. Well, first I went to the original place where they were conducting the interviews and the, the room door was locked. I was like, oh, am I late? Oh, my God, I'm here on time. What's going on? And then I hear someone from down the hall say, hey, are you are you here for the interview? And I turn and walking towards me is Brian came on and he says, hi, I'm Brian. I was like, uh, yeah, uh, really nice to meet you. He's like, oh, we're, we're doing the interview down in the lobby by the hotel bar, if you don't mind. I was like, oh, of course. Um, so I'm in the elevator and I'm thinking to myself, don't bring up why, don't bring up why. I think, so why? Uh, it's an amazing comic, and it pretty much got me into writing comics, and, and he was really kind of really nice about it. Like, he clearly didn't have to have this conversation with me, but, um, you know, then he asked me what I was working on, and I, you know, gave him some, you know, literally elevator pitches in, in an elevator. No, oh, there you go. <laughs> and he liked he liked a couple of them, which I, was, I felt great about, um, and, uh, yeah, so it was just awesome to talk to him and, and, you know, to know that he is just a really nice guy in person just makes it all that much more satisfying to support his work. That that makes me even happier because, yeah, like the, the last issue of Saga, I, we talked about this with Josh Williamson before, where it's just like, it just hits you where you live. <laughs> That's like, a great way to put it. Oh my God! Just, just like the punch in the gut that you get from that last page of the of the, of the last issue so far, and you're just kind of like, how? What is? Why? Yeah, he's the he's a master at the cliffhanger. He's so good. He like he's a surgeon. Like it's so it's phenomenal with with every way that each issue ends. It's just like yeah, it just it hits you in the feels, and you're just like, man, I didn't know I could feel this. Yeah, you're like. Damn you for making me feel things <laughs> with this comic. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and you also met, uh, I loved uh, Manifest Destiny. Um, yeah. The history geek in me was just going like, oh, Lewis and Clark, and then, oh, my God, plant zombies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Because I, I mean, personally, I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of zombies. But again, you know, kind of like what we talked about with Art Monster. Like, if you're gonna take something, you have to bring something new to it. And and I liked the idea of how these like plant zombies worked. Yeah. You know. Oh, absolutely. And. Uh, and Put them in with like Lewis and Clark. You're like, so like, all right, I'm on board. And it's cool. And it's like, um, you know, I, I, I didn't, I don't know a whole. I, I mean, I know the basic story of Lewis and Clark. So it's cool to kind of see a reimagining, retelling of their journey. Um, obviously, there's differences, um, mm-hmm. but it's cool to to think like that'd be cool if that actually did happen. Like those are my favorite historical historical fiction uh, stories. When it's like, did that happen? Like the best compliment I've ever gotten for after reading is when people say. Oh, I didn't know Houdini had a son. And I say, oh, he didn't. <laughs> that's, all, that's all me and Kevin. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and, and so also, you know, outside of comic books, like what, what's your general, like do you have like things that you're, you're really geeky or nerdy about, like things that you're very, I mean, other than comics that you're passionate about, I suppose. Um. TV shows. <laughs> uh, like what? Well, since moving, so I, I lived in New York for a little over five years, and, and since relocating, relocating to Vermont with my fiance, uh, I've had a lot more quiet time, a um, lot less distractions. So shows, anything that Netflix puts out as as an original series, I'm pretty much, pretty much hooked on. So I, you know, I've been binge watching Orange Is the New Black, um, House of Cards. True Detective is a show that was a mind bender, and, and I I'm, I think about that show every day. Do you? <laughs> oh, Breaking Bad, obviously. Um, so yeah, there's uh, I I'd say the True Detective was probably the most influential show I've watched in a while that has really opened my eyes to just wanting to write. Oh, so good. I mean, yeah, I, I came on I came on that um, towards the end. Okay. Uh, so, so I like actually, so I um, acquired it, quote unquote, online, nice. um, and and watched the the first seven up until the f- the finale that it aired. I think on the day that I downloaded all of them, yeah. <laughs> and just binge watching it and being like, I have to go to bed and go to work tomorrow, but I want to watch this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it was the yellow game. It was the yellow game. <laughs> like, why is so? what is going on? <laughs> I know. Well, and 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 all the stuff about the um the ending because people were so so like critical of it. It's like it's it's probably one of the first shows where I really stepped back and not looked at it all that analytically because I tend to do that with a lot of things. Okay. It was just one of those shows where I was just like, I just want to enjoy this and just let it kind of like wash over me, kind of bit. Yeah, yeah. I was um, I was not disappointed at all, to be honest. Like I. I could see why people were upset, but if I hadn't read comments, I would have been completely oblivious to those. Yeah, I, I was the same way. It's like I I understand why you you think this, but at the same time, I feel like emotionally and story wise, it all came together. Yeah, you know, absolutely. and and Woody Harrelson and and Matthew McConaughey just it was just like my God, you guys are good at what you do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was it was a very impressive finale and. It was haunting, honestly, haunting. Yeah, and and again, those are the those are the things that I'm really attracted to. Like, I, I love things that challenge me as a viewer, challenge me um, as a as a person on some level. Like, you know, what what level of you know will you allow yourself to tolerate something before you're just like, oh, I can't stand it. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I I I'm a huge David Lynch fan, and I think people have that reaction 
mm-hmm. with a lot of his work. Um, and I, I know my, my fiance has r- a hard time watching stuff that either is awkward, like where, um, like Veep is a great show and it's just mm-hmm. full of awkward moments. And yeah. you know, she, she cringes. She's like, I can't, I can't, I can't watch this. It's too painful. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it is. It's hella awkward. I know, but it's also hilarious. Uh, I, I get that with the um, when my sister was really into the office. Yeah. And uh I and I get it. I mean, I I would watch it occasionally, um but I I am the same way as your fiance. I'm not very good with that kind of uncomfortable humor. Yeah. It just makes me want to scream into a pillow because you feel that awkwardness. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, "No, no, no." Yeah, stop talking. <laughs> like, quit now. While your head oh crap, he kept going. <laughs> So okay, so True Detective, the uh, um, have you watched so, have you watched Silicon Valley? I've watched I watched the, the first couple of episodes. I haven't kept up with it, but I know that it's really good. Oh, I mean, I, uh, it, that was that's been filling my funny quota. It, mm-hmm. Like it, it's the funniest. I, I'm a huge fan of Mike Judge, and you know, I think uh, you know Office Space is is classic. Um, I think things he's done in between have been. You know, some have been decent, but this is, to me, like him, you know, back in action. Like, yeah. the, the the characters he's he's uh, focusing on and the things that are explored are just so perfect and so funny and the timing and, and being, working in technology, it's like, <laughs> it's perfect, so. Does it just speak to you on that level where you're like, yep? It does. <laughs> like, even though I, I don't... I, I'm a I'm a hardware software repair technician, so I'm not writing code. I'm not doing any of the software engineering. Um, so all of that stuff is quite outside of my element, or uh, even. But this show doesn't. You don't need that. Like, um, so it's accessible. Yes, yeah. very much so. And yeah, because I mean, I love the. Um, uh, the the premise, that, you know, is is definitely interesting. But I like all the comedians that he's hired. Yeah. You know the. T.J. Miller and Kumail Nanjiani and uh, Thomas Middleditch. Yes. So, like, all those guys are amazing. Um, have you ever watched um, the IT Crowd? I have. I haven't. I haven't watched it regularly, but yeah, it's pretty fantastic. That, that was one of those where um, I had a group of friends where I was just like, "You have to watch this," because I had like the first three series or whatever at the time. Okay. And they they watched it and they're like, "Yeah, I didn't get it." And I was like, "I think our friendship is over." <laughs> Like, come on! Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a British show that I I adore, uh, Peep Show. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah, all my it's like for me it's like a friendship test. Like you got to watch a couple episodes. If you don't get it, I don't know why we're friends. The, the litmus test for everyone. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I have that with movies like the the Princess Bride. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like yeah. if you can put up and tolerate the fact that I watch this movie regularly. <laughs> I think yeah. we're good. Yeah, I'm actually. Uh, I hate. I don't really want to bring this up, but uh, I'm actually friends with Mandy Patinkin. What? Yeah, uh, I fixed this computer. That's the perks of working for Apple. Um, and, All right, we're talking after this is done recording. Yeah. And uh, so it's been it's been really cool to kind of uh, you know I grew up with that film. My older sister introduced me to that film, and, and uh, mm-hmm. to then realize one day I was going to be friends with someone in it was pretty surreal. So. Yeah, I read a an article for my my personal blog about how it how the movie was for me the perfect movie, like not a perfect movie, but just the perfect movie. Yeah, and uh, it's surprising, you know, I I realize so many people that I know have not seen it. 
Yeah, it, isn't that weird, like, where you, you feel like it's a movie that you would just assume everyone has seen? Yeah, yeah. And then when you find out no one, you know, certain people have, and you're like, how have you survived this long? <laughs> yeah, how did you make it through childhood? I, I, I had that with my roommates in college. They hadn't seen Airplane. Oh, really? Yeah, it it just blew my mind because my my family is very big on on comedies, you know, a, a lot of them like Mel Brooks and Monty Python and all that kind of stuff. And so with Airplane is just so watchable to me that when they said, "No, I've never seen it." It's, I'm pretty sure my jaw hit the ground or something. <laughs> you know, I have never seen The Sound of Music and my fiance gives me so much crap about it. No, see, there you go. <laughs> you mean you haven't sat through like a practically 4-hour musical before? <laughs> What's wrong with you? I know. I'm missing out. <laughs> we had to watch that in a, a choir class one time. It was just like, so this will be lasting us a whole week then, is what you're saying. <laughs> nice. Easiest week ever. Um, well, Jeremy, we've been going for uh, over an hour now, and uh, this, has been really, this has been really fun talking to you. I, I completely concur. Enjoy this so much, and uh, I, will, I will definitely be keeping up with your books now that I am fully aware of them. I appreciate that. Yes, and uh, so Southern Southern Dog is your uh, is the one that's going to be coming out um, what in the summer? Uh, so, August thirteenth is is the debut of issue one. Debut of issue one. Okay, and previews magazine right now. Okay, and uh, and people can find uh, issues of Art Monster on Monkey Brain and Comixology, right? Correct. And then uh, what about After Houdini? After Houdini is on ReadChallenger.com. Um, pulp is on Gumroad.com slash Pulp, I think. Okay, and uh, is there anything else you want to plug? Um, I guess uh, Skinned, the other Monkey Brain series I'm co-writing with with Tim Daniel, uh, the second issue comes out next Wednesday. Okay. And uh, where can people find you online? Twitter is just at Jeremy underscore Holt. Um, I kind of keep up with a blog, I guess, which is Mm clumpoftrees.tumblr.com. And, yeah, that's about it. Can I ask you where the Clump of Trees uh, name came from? Um, So my, my older brother oldest brother in high school uh, ran for class uh, president and he was coming up with a bunch of slogans and apparently Holt translated from German to English means clump of trees. So Uh one of his slogans was, you know, vote for, uh, vote for Steve Holt. Uh, His last name means clump of trees. Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, if, if Arrested Development had come out when he was in high school, he would have been, he would have won because his name is Steve Holt. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so that kind of stuck with me and I, I've kind of used clump of trees forever. Just, yeah, I'm, you know. I'm the same way with my, um, my handle Sambalam, uh, has been like following me my whole life. So <laughs> I totally understand. Um, well, uh, before we go, I just want to say, uh, once again, Jeremy, thank you. And, uh, for everyone listening out there, you can find this podcast and other wonderful podcasts from Word of the Nerd online or wordofthenerd.com, I guess now, the online part we're supposed to kind of nix out. Um, wordofthenerd.com, find all of our uh, wonderful podcasts on iTunes. You can give us stars, say lots of nice things, or ask questions of us and we will answer them if we can or choose to. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. 
uh, and go to the website and read all of our wonderful articles. And uh, if you want to personally talk to me or like me and friend me and whatnot, you can go uh, find me on Twitter at darling underscore Sammy and my own personal blog, uh, The Maniacal Geek on WordPress. And again, for That Girl with the Curls, Jeremy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me.